Welcome to the Kyperian Commentary, episode 107. We're talking today with Rick Boyer, who is a constitutional lawyer uh, and also um, has uh, done a lot of work with local politics in and around Campbell County, Virginia. Uh, last year, he published a book, God, Caesar, and Idols, and that's what we want to talk about with him today. Uh, Rick, it's good to have you here. Thank you, Rick. It's a it's a good day. We've got two Ricks on the show. We'll just be the Rick and Rick show for today. It's always great when there's two Ricks. <laughs> you can't get it's enough Ricks. Recipe for world domination. Yeah. So I was, you know, I came across your book. I've I've known you a little bit on and off over the years, and um, kind of know your work with the Campbell County Republican Party. But I came across your book. I was reading it. Absolutely loved it. Uh, do you mind talking a little bit about the impetus for the book? What prompted you to write the book? Sure. Well, I've, I've been involved, as you said, in conservative, local conservative activism in Central Virginia since I was, a, I guess, a 16-year-old kid back when Steve Newman first ran for House of Delegates. I uh, was 16, didn't have my driver's license yet, and one of my little one of my uh, Liberty College Republican buddies used to take me around to knock on doors and put up signs for Steve. So um, 30 years of, of trying to recruit uh, Christians, people with a biblical worldview, and, and get them to run for public office. Um, uh, Bob Good is a friend that I recruited for the Board of Supervisors, and now he's serving us in Washington in, in Congress. Um, so that's the background for, I guess, just who I am personally. But uh, I've, because of that involvement, I used I used to think, Rick, that if we could just get more Christians to be involved in politics, that we could really change the culture. Then after 30 years of being involved, and I guess 2017, 2018, 2018, when I started writing this book, so at that point it would have been about 25 years of being involved, um, I realized that we've gotten a lot of Christians involved, and it really hasn't changed the culture. And uh, two elections in particular that really frustrated me. Uh, one of them was 2016. Of course, I was a huge Ted Cruz person, and uh, I still believe character matters. And watching some of the, the character flaws with with uh, President Trump really frustrated me. And watching Christians sort of whitewash those character flaws because of what the policies they thought he would produce. And I have to admit, he ended up being a, a great president, and I certainly supported him for re-election. But the, watching Christians be willing to whitewash character flaws for political gain um, when scripture tells us that he who ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. And I didn't see that from pre-2016 Donald Trump in any sort of way. Um, and then the 2017 election here locally, where um, we had several tremendous biblical worldview believers uh, who were, a couple of them were serving on our board of supervisors and a couple of them were running for the school board that year. And one of the candidates for school board, the the, uh, the election really changed dramatically. Our local high school, uh, Brookville High School, published a, a centerfold in their high school yearbook about a, a cross-dressing student. And uh, John Kinchin, who was our candidate for school board, and at that point, I believe, was running ahead. He had yard signs all over the, the district. It's 80% Republican district. Well, he published some Facebook ads. Of course, he redacted the student's name, redacted the student's picture. It was not an attack on the student. It was his criticism was we should not be using taxpayer dollars and a public school yearbook to promote cross-dressing as an acceptable form of behavior. And I watched his yard signs disappearing out of the yards of, con of professing conservative Christians, even people I went to church with who couldn't stand the heat after he 
decided to talk about what the Bible says about this critical cultural issue. And he ended up losing the election. It was very close. It was about, I think, an 80 vote margin. But in a 80% Republican district in the very shadow of Liberty University, the sort of the buckle of the Bible belt, if you will, to watch Christians pull the man's sign out of his yard because he stood for biblical truth on a difficult cultural issue. Um, all four of our candidates, two for supervisor and two for school board, lost that year. And it was a clear referendum on um, biblical truth on one side versus more more tax dollars. We'll, we'll give you all the tax dollars you want for your local schools on the other side. To me, it was reminiscent of John 4, uh, or Satan told Jesus, that all this, all this, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all this will I give you if you bow down and worship me. And to watch my friends and neighbors in Campbell County make the choice that they would rather take all this, uh, they would rather worship the money and worship the dollars as opposed to worshiping the God of the Bible and the truth of the Bible. Um, that was probably the worst election year of my life was 2017, and just watching my community change God's or at least admit that it had changed God's right in front of my eyes. In this book, as I mentioned to you when we talked previously, it sort of wrote itself um, out of just the frustration of, of watching what was happening in a very Christian community, a very conservative Republican community, where the word of God was being subordinated to the almighty dollar. And that was the, um, that was the impetus for writing the book. Yeah, and I think in reading the book, one thing that you emphasize throughout is the need for Christian worldview. And I know you as a longtime homeschooler as a child, homeschooler as a dad, mm -hmm. you know the importance of inculcating a Christian worldview. And one thing I see, even with the Lynchburg City Council this year, we got three new conservatives on board conservative-dominated city council, and many of the things they've been doing don't line up with what you would expect an absolutely conservative-dominated city council to do. Yep. And so Christians get into public office, but somehow they don't have an idea of what ought the civil magistrate to be doing? What is our role as Christians in government? And that goes back to bad preaching. It goes back to bad preaching. I mean, how, how shall they hear unless they be sent and how shall they hear without a preacher um and when i mean there, there's so many chapters in the in the minor prophets in the old testament my, my people are like sheep without a shepherd and woe to the shepherds you see this constantly um they've healed the hurt of my peace of my people falsely saying peace peace when there is no peace um and i talk a great deal in the book about misleadership from even a lot of the the popular evangelical preachers who you and I have are, are familiar with and our, our yeah. viewers will be familiar with. And a whole lot of what these folks say is true and is biblical and is scriptural. And folks tend to take everything they say as gospel without doing like the Bereans did with the Apostle Paul and searching the scriptures daily to see whether the teachings are true. Uh, the, the worst one, I think, the, the most, and we, we do it all over the place. We do it constantly. We, we adopt the world's nomenclature. We adopt the world's terminology. Um, we know that Jesus said that love your neighbor is the second commandment. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so then when the world hits us with Black Lives Matter theology, social justice theology, which is born out of pure paganism and pure Marxism, but it has just enough of a Christian veneer to it that we fall for it because we are supposed to love our neighbor. And certainly 
the Bible tells us to do justice. So you use social justice and it it grabs Christians. It attracts Christians because we are supposed to do justice. We are supposed to uh, do for the least of these. We're supposed to do for the alien, for the fatherless, for the widow. I mean, these are all biblical principles. And they throw just a, even even our worst enemies political politically and theologically will throw just enough Christianism into their arguments that it's it sells to Christian. And when you have popular and generally credible evangelical mm-hmm. preachers who let just a little bit of falsehood creep into the general truth of their teachings, it sells all the better. And I think the the worst place we have done this is with the misinterpretation of Romans 13. And I, ad- I adapt uh, or I I uh, I give one chapter in the book and the, the better part of a, a second chapter to the whole question of Romans 13 and the, the proper scriptural interpretation of Romans 13. Um, I, th- I think the the passage or the the, mis- the the passage whose misinterpretation has done the most damage to the Christian's ability to be effective in the culture is the misinterpretation of Romans 13, 1 through 7. Then they'll add into that Jesus' words in Mark where he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And we'll, we misconstrue this into a, doc- a, a doctrine of absolute unlimited submission to the secular authority whatever Caesar says must be God saying it. That's not what Romans is saying. That's not what Christ is saying. But that is what a whole lot of popular preachers have said. Um, and then they'll, and one example I used is is John MacArthur, who said that um, cultural, that the culture has no relevance to the spread of the gospel, he said. That's just not true. And then he says that using temporal means like lobbying and political action um, is irrelevant to the spread of the gospel and certainly it's irrelevant to whether an eternal soul goes to heaven but to say that the culture war is irrelevant to the gospel if hearts are changed by the gospel cultures must be changed you cannot change hearts and change men without changing cultures it's impossible um the the title of my book was god god caesar and idols because i think we have the the american church is doing a lot like the ancient Israelites did. The ancient Israelites clear up un- until the time of the Babylonian captivity. They didn't shut down the temple. Mm. They did not completely stop the sacrifices to Jehovah. They stopped observing the Sabbath. But the biggest problem was they brought other gods and other idols in and set them up next to God's altar in the temple. It was not that they quit recognizing that there was Jehovah God. They worshiped other gods. The American church has done largely the same thing. Uh, we see the Apostle John, we, we think idolatry is so Old Testament. Then why does John close First John with the admonition to little children, guard yourselves from idols? If he's not worried about us worshiping idols, why does he warn us against idols? And one, I, I think the biggest idol of the modern American church is Caesar, um, the state, the secular state. Uh, a number, there are several spectacular quotes that are not original to me that, that uh, made their way into the book. And uh, try to make my book look better by quoting uh, <laughs> quoting quoting better and smarter authors than than yours truly to, to make the point but uh, a number of of theologians have made the point that the culture war is really nothing more than a clash of gods and jesus in the the passage from mark we talked about where he said where he said render to caesar what is caesar's we look at that as well, i mean a lot of a lot of our Christian misleaders like Russell Moore of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission yeah. of the Southern Baptist Convention, who's no longer still there and 
a classic case of addition by subtraction with, with him leaving. <laughs> but um, they have, Russell Moore basically sets obedience to the state as obedience to God. As long you, you can measure your obedience to God by how obedient you are to Caesar. There's basically two gods, and by obeying one, you're obeying the other. Yeah. And he, he may not quite say it that way, but that's really where he he really places Caesar on a level with God. And Christ does not do this. And Christ says, render to Caesar what Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. And in the culture in which Christ lived, Caesar demanded worship as a god. That's why the Christians died in the amphitheaters, not because they said Jesus is the only way to heaven, but because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. Now, Caesar wasn't talking about the afterlife. Caesar couldn't have cared less about the afterlife. What Caesar wanted was as long as you were here walking around on this planet, you declared Caesar as Lord over your temporal life. The Christians refused to do this. If the Christians would have just said, believe in Jesus and go to heaven, they would have just been, Jesus just would have been one more of the pantheon of Roman gods that were perfectly allowed and, and didn't upset Caesar at all. But when they refused to confess Caesar as Lord in the here and now, that's what got them killed. And when Jesus said, render to Caesar what Caesar's, render to God what is God's, Jesus was forbidding his followers to render to Caesar what belongs to God. That was revolutionary. That was civil disobedience of the highest order. And it was used against him in the charges the Jewish leaders brought to Pilate, that this man declares himself a king. And if you are a king, you are no friend of Caesar. So the fact that Jesus set up God as an alternative deity to Caesar was used as one of the charges for his execution. And, and the execution for, for thousands, if not millions of his followers over the next 40 years of the Roman Empire. Yeah, and it seems like what, what you have today is many Christians who say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, and what is Caesar's is everything Caesar says is Caesar's. Correct. Right, Caesar gets to decide what belongs to him, and whatever's left that Caesar hasn't claimed for himself, that can be God's. And, yes, and when you and do that, so, you invert the relationship. I mean, if we can go back to Romans 13 for a minute. Uh, when you when you make that misapplication of Romans 13, that Caesar, whatever belongs, whatever Caesar claims to belong to him, you have to give him. If that is true, the the Latin title for Caesar was Pontifex Maximus or high priest. The 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 Caesar was considered the prime religious leader under the under the Roman civil system. After they died, they were deified as gods. I mean, the, the divine Augustus was the name of, of Caesar Augustus after he died. Uh, the Roman God-man, if you will, that's how he viewed himself. He was a God-man. Jesus was the true God-man, capital G, but the Roman Caesar demanded to be the small g God-man. Uh, and Jesus said no. Jesus said, and, and, and Paul wrote in Romans 13, if you look at, Paul is not just a great religious leader. Paul is a great uh, logician. Paul is a great thinker. Um, and if you look at his... He opens Romans 13, verse 1, with a foundational statement. This is his opening premise, that the powers that be are, are ordained of God. So he starts by saying, uh, God is the source of all power, and all human government is derived from God. If it is derived from God, then by logical uh, necessity, it has to be less than God. I mean, only God is omnipresent, right? Only God is omniscient. Only God is infinite. So anything that is derived from God, given by God, must necessarily be less than God. I mean, he gave Adam dominion over the, the birds and the fish of the sea, but that was still subject to God's dominion. Adam still could not 
eat of the tree of the garden, the tree in the middle of the garden. He was God, Adam's dominion over all creation was still subject to God's dominion. And so in God's economy, it always has been and it always must be. Now, the original sin was not Adam and Eve. The original sin was Satan, whose heart was lifted up. And he said, I will be like the most high. And God says, no, you won't. <laughs> uh, there is there is only one. I am God and there is none other. When So if, if the power, again, back to Paul's foundational statement, if the power is derived from God, number one, it has to be so it has to be less than God. It cannot be infinite. It has to be a subset of God's power. All of God's power is not delegated to Caesar, so only a subset of God's power is delegated. Secondly, it's from God. It's ordained of God, so it must be subject to God. So not only is it less than God, but it is subject to God. And because Paul goes on to say that they are ministers of God for good to reward the good and punish the evil— Therefore, there's a jurisdictional principle here. It must the, the authority must be exercised in conformity to the command of God. The, the inferior must obey the superior. And Paul says, for this cause, because it is a power that's delegated from God, that is less than God, that is subordinate to God, and that is to be used as a minister of God, for this cause, Christians are to be subject. A logic student would recognize the, the if-then syllogism here. Uh, the power... Because it's created from God, delegated by God, uh, subordinate to God, and exercised as a minister of God, for this cause we are to be subject to it. For this cause we are to pay taxes. When Caesar says, no, I am God, and you are to render to me what God says is to be rendered to him, at that point the cause for Christian submission disappears. The if-then syllogism breaks. Paul's logic breaks down yeah. if or not not Paul's logic breaks down, but MacArthur's logic breaks down, or Russell Moore's logic breaks down, because the cause has gone away. And if the cause for submission, the cause for payment of taxes, the cause for obedience has gone away, uh, it's, it, it cannot be viewed as a blind command of unlimited submission to whatever Caesar claims. And if, if, if we do this, we're disobeying Jesus' command to render unto God what is God's. When Caesar says, I am God, and God says, I am God, and there is none other. You have, an un you have a, a clash of gods that has gone on, I argue, in the book, since the Tower of Babel. When man first said, let's build a secular state, we're going to build a, a temple to worship the stars, it's going to reach to heaven, and we're, so we will not be get, scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. We're going to build a one-world government right here that worships man and worships man's capabilities. It was the first recorded reference of Caesar challenging God. And Caesar has always challenged God ever since. Uh, and Jesus looked in the face of Caesar and said, you are not God, and my people are not to worship you, and they are not to give to you the obedience that is only given to God. It was a revolutionary statement of civil disobedience, not a, the, the polar opposite of the command of blind submission that too many of our evangelical leaders have cast it to be. Yeah. And even in the passage you were referencing uh, a minute ago about the fall of Satan, how you're a fallen, O Lucifer, star of the morning, mm -hmm. uh, said, I will be lifted up. I will be like the most high. Even in the context, that's a prophecy against the king of Babylon. So the, yep. the, the picture of Satan's fall is the same picture as the, the fall of every Caesar who wants to assert himself as God or assert the state as God. We, we try to say, well, the, the Old Testament is written to Israel, to God's people. It's not relevant to America 
Well, Babylon is relevant to America. <laughs> Babylon was not God's chosen people. <clears throat> you look at you look all throughout the prophets where God says for for three sins of the children of Moab and for four, I will not remove the punishment thereof. For three sins of the children of Edom and for four, I will not take away the punishment thereof. Nation after nation after nation that were secular nations that were in some cases specifically under God's curse. And yet, because and yet those nations were still held accountable to God and they were punished and they were removed because they did not recognize the lordship of God. Uh, it is not just ancient Israel. We, we do a, a huge disservice, and I, I would argue a disobedience to King Jesus when we just say, oh, that's just Israel. That's just this one lone theocracy. The Old Testament is all about them. It has no relationship to America or to any other nation today. That's just not true, and the rest of the Old Testament bears this out. I think that is a major failure in preaching in churches. There are many churches you can go to for years and never hear the Old Testament preached at all. It's all the New Testament. Um, as far as logic goes, you're talking about... Yeah, the everything, everything of... from the Old Testament, everything <laughs> in the New Testament. Every time Jesus quotes Scripture, Peter quotes Scripture, Paul quotes Scripture, what are they quoting? Old Testament? Quoting the Old Testament. Yeah, so you, you were talking about the, the logical structure of Romans 13, the if-then syllogism. I think logic is really important to an education of a of a Christian, I think we should teach our kids logic. It's something we've lost as a culture. Um, and a reading, if you read Isaac Watts's logic book, uh, the guy who wrote Joy to the World, he also wrote a logic textbook that was used at, I believe, Harvard for about two hundred years before it was ah. finally replaced. And he spends about the first two thirds of this massive book only talking about definitions and categories and different types of things, and how they fit into different categories. And I think that's really part of our problem, is we don't know how to categorize anything anymore. And we don't even believe in definitions or categories. You know, what is a man? What is a woman? We don't know. They could go, there. there's any sort of category. Uh, what, what sort of obedience ought to be rendered to Caesar? What sort of obedience ought to be rendered to God? We don't have categories in our minds for where those things go, where to put those things. So um, where do we go forward as far as educating Christians? Uh, you're, you're in the Baptist world. I'm in the Presbyterian world. So um, I'll say Russell Moore is your problem. And, <laughs> and Westminster West and is yours. R2, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say the R2K guys are, are my problem. Uh, but where do you see moving forward with the general populace of, okay, how do we get people educated so that they're thinking in categories. So when they hear social justice, they can say, well, I know what biblical justice is. That's a definition, and that doesn't fit the definition. Or God is love. Well, I know who God is. I know what love is, and what you're calling love isn't love. How do we move forward with that? It goes back to where every search for truth always goes back to, um, and that is Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Uh, there, we have to be better students of the Bible, the whole thing, not proof-texted passages to, to argue the point we want to make, but the whole, the whole Scripture, all Scripture, Paul said. I mean, the, the, the biggest rebuke to our modern preachers who ignore the Old Testament is Paul, when he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. When Paul wrote that, he hadn't written the book yet that he was writing. He was talking about the Old Testament, and certainly the New Testament as well, but he, he had in mind the Old Testament when he said this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for correction, for reproof, or for, for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, 
all of our answers come from that book. We've got to go back to it. We've got to be better Bible students of the entire Bible. Um, we have, as I said a minute ago, we've adopted the world's nomenclature, <clears throat> and it's because we don't know what the Bible says about it. I, I devoted an, an entire chapter in God, Caesar, and Idols to the concept of absolute truth. Uh, I forget what the percentages are now, but it's a stunningly high percentage. It's better than half of professing Christians who do not believe there's such a thing as absolute truth. Think about this for a second. If there's no absolute truth, then it is not absolutely true that if I confess my sins, if I turn in faith and accept the free gift that Christ did on the cross, that I go to heaven when I die. That's not absolutely true. If there is no absolute truth, that's a scary proposition. If there is no absolute promise of eternal life anywhere in Scripture, then we ought to be living scared um, as supposed believers in this book. If there, and yet a majority of Christians supposedly, according to uh, according to the George Barna research, don't believe there's absolute. Well, a majority of professing Christians don't believe there's absolute truth. And so I devote an entire chapter to what is truth. The, the Old Testament prophets didn't care what George Gallup thought in the Gallup poll. The Old Testament prophets didn't care if they won elections based on what they believed. The Old Testament prophets only cared about one thing, thus saith the Lord. And if God said it, that was all the Old Testament prophets needed to know. That was all John the Baptist needed to know. That was all Jesus needed to know. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, he says, again, quoting from the Old Testament, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we don't believe, this, this I think, is the heart of the problem, Rick. And uh, as you say, I come from Baptist circles. Uh, but I think Baptists, far too many of us, and far too many evangelical Christians generally, do not really believe that God is authoritative, that Scripture is authoritative. They, they, in their deepest, in innermost soul, they do not, I mean, they may say they believe it, but they do not practically, a, a lot of us are professing Christians, but practical atheists. We live as if yeah. there was no God, um, which Psalm says is the cry of the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But we live practically as if there were no God. Uh, if there is a God, and if he is God, then he must be authoritative, or he's not God. Uh, and if, when when Christians say, I believe Jesus will take me to heaven when I die, because he said so, but I'm not so convinced that when Jesus said in Matthew 19, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave it to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, and it's just no big screaming deal if, 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 uh, things aren't going well, we just break things off and we go look for somebody better. If, I mean, Jesus said, if you don't believe me when I, when I tell you of earthly things, how shall you believe when I tell you heavenly things? And yet, the only, for some of us in the Christian and the evangelical world, the only thing we think is non-negotiable about Scripture is that if you believe Jesus died, rose again, and it's by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, and it's all of God and not of me, you believe those things, you, you can check those boxes on a test, and you automatically get to go to heaven, but the rest of Scripture isn't necessarily authoritative to me. That's a dangerous position, Yeah, because you, you can't, there are no rebels in heaven. There are, I mean, Jesus said, if you take away from the words of this prophecy, your name is taken away from the book of life. 
you cannot believe those parts of Jesus that you want to believe, disbelieve those parts of Jesus and his word and the scripture that are not agreeable to you. I mean, you have to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And that you're not just confessing that Jesus was a historical figure who died and rose again three days later and ascended back into heaven. You, you have to confess him as Lord. And um, we we confess him as Savior without acknowledging him as Lord doesn't work. If he is not God, if he is not entitled to my obedience, then I'm not truly confessing him as God. I have not. I, I can't accept as Savior someone I don't acknowledge as Lord, someone I don't acknowledge as God, someone whose word I do not view as authoritative. That is not surrender. That is not, uh, I mean, when Paul talks, and we, we talked about this in the book too, when Paul talks about salvation, Paul does not talk about checking 10 boxes theologically that I, I understand and agree with these theological points. Paul says it's a complete change of masters. Being freed from sin, he said, you are slaves of sin. There was nothing you could do about it. You are a slave being set free from sin, you've been made slaves unto God. You've been made slaves of righteousness. Um, it is a change of masters. It is not, and too many evangelical churches will let you, you can sit in church for month after month and year after year and never be told sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Yeah. Um, you have changed masters. I mean, you cannot believe these things about Jesus without accepting Jesus as Lord, without accepting him, his word as authoritative, without putting him on the throne of your life. Uh, if you don't change masters, you're not going to heaven. I mean, Jesus does not take uh, into heaven anyone who has never surrendered yeah. to him as God. Um, it is it is a dangerous position that a lot of people are in from having been in evangelical churches for years, thinking, oh, I've, I've prayed a prayer, I've said the formulaic words, I believe these things as historical. Well, I believe in George Washington, too. I believe he was a historical <laughs> figure, and he did these things and those things. It does nothing to change my eternal soul, because I believe as true these accurate facts about the historical figure, George Washington. Um, if, if, I mean, Elijah cast out this challenge to the people of Israel, if God be God, follow him. If Baal be God, follow him. But you've got to pick one. Well, that brings us full circle back to the early Christians who are being killed for their faith. They're not being killed for saying Jesus wants to get inside your heart and help you go to heaven. They're getting killed because they won't say Kaiser Kurios. They won't say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord of Caesar. And that's Perfect. why they're being killed. And they understood that. Um, and if that, I, that, um, that was a long rabbit trail of answering your question. If we're going to change the fact that we have a bunch of Christians try, even trying to be involved in the culture, but philosophically and logically unarmed, we have to first go back and say, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible define its terms? What does the Bible say love is? It's the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said, if you, if you, and love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love is not telling somebody, I know what you're doing is abhorrent to God, but I love you and it's okay, and I'm sure that somehow or another all roads will lead to God, and you'll get in, and it'll be okay. No. Uh, love is Jonah going to, the, to Nineveh and saying, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. You've got to repent. And love is saying, judgment is coming. Love is saying, when, the, when, when Jesus comes back the next time, he's not coming as a baby. The blood's going to be running to the horse's bridles. 
that there is a day of judgment coming and he will say to those on his right, welcome into the, the glory of your father. And he'll say unto those who on his left, depart from me, you accursed into everlasting fire reserved for the devil and his angels. It is not loving to tell people you're going there, but it's okay. It is loving to tell people you're going there and there is a better way and there is a better plan and there is somewhere else that you can go. Flee from the wrath to come. The most loving message ever preached is flee from the wrath to come. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we're we're running low on time here, but I do want to ask you sort of one final question. You wrote this book. It's packed full of good stuff. It, it felt like it covered a wide swath. You must have been sort of building up like a dam for years and finally it just burst <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> because it's kind of correct. a book about everything in a sense that's wrong with our, our modern church and culture. Uh, who should read it? Is it for pastors? Is it for the people in the pews? Who ought to uh, go get this book and read it? I would love for pastors to read it. Um, I never studied for the pastorate because I'm scared to, Rick. Um, it is a dangerous thing to claim to speak for God. In the Old Testament, if they got one prophecy wrong, they were stoned. Uh, it is a dangerous, dangerous business. James says, be not many teachers, knowing that as such we receive greater condemnation. Um, pastors need to be sure this is not just a day job. This is not something I do because it's a paycheck attached. This is the word of God. Check me. Question me. Go back to the Bible and and, and if, if I'm wrong, correct me. I mean, tell Amen. me that I'm not preaching from Scripture. Pastors need to read it. Um, uh, Christians in general need to read it. Um, not because I'm so great, but because I quoted from a lot of great people that said a lot of great <laughs> things that you really ought to read. I did um, notice that, too. There's a wide variety of people being quoted in the book. I was really, I was even jotting down quotes as I read it that yeah. I wanted to save for later. So, yes, for sure. Uh, yeah. But particularly people who either are involved in the culture war or want to be involved in the culture war. And as I said in the book, it's really not a culture war. It is really a, a clash of gods. And the culture war began when Satan said, I am God, or I want to be God. I want to be like the Most High. That was when the culture war really began. Yes. And it was not primarily cultural. It was primarily spiritual. It was primarily theological. Today's culture war is a theological struggle between God and Caesar. Who has the right to man's allegiance? the omnipotent secular state, or Jesus Christ and Jehovah God. It's, it's got to be one or the other. If, if you want to be involved in the culture war, if you are involved in the culture war, uh, you should read the book. And to be honest, if you don't think that Scripture has any relevance to the culture, I wish you'd read the book. <laughs> um, if yes. you don't think that, and I guess that's the, the biggest audience, honestly, Rick, that I wanted to read to it. The, I didn't write the book to make any money, which is a good thing because it hasn't. <laughs> so I, I wanted to be a part of the debate, a part of the discussion. And it's it's frustrating to me that as an attorney and a political activist, um, I felt like I needed to go back and say, what does the Bible say? Because I'm not hearing it from preachers. Uh, immensely frustrating. Uh, we're, we're not teaching the full counsel of God. We are not rightly dividing the, the word of truth. We're doing a really poor job in the pulpits of telling people what God expects of them. Uh, Nancy Pierce, and again, we, we devoted a whole chapter to this uh, in her book, Total Truth. I basically reviewed her book, Total Truth, in, in one of the chapters in my book. But she talks about the original Great Commission, if you will. And I think she calls it the cultural mandate. I call it the first Great Commission. But God told Adam to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth. Uh, he was he was telling Adam to 
build cultures, to build civilization, agriculture, politics, arts, government, civic affairs, music. I mean, all these are part of being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth, construction, uh, building cities, bridges, railroads, airlines, ships. Uh, all these are part of being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth. The original mandate that man was put here for bef before we were before we had sinned, before we fell, before there was any need to teach all nations and baptize them, there was the need for the cultural mandate. That's the other part of the Great Commission. And Jesus repeats this, Rick, in the what we call the Great Commission. I call it the yeah. Second Great Commission. He says, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We may be doing an okay job of the first half of that. We're failing to teach the people and teach all nations, nations, not just men, but all nations to do all things that he's commanded. We, ha If we're going to be a great commission church, we have to be a cultural mandate church. That's right. Well, Rick, thanks for talking to us today and uh, go and buy Rick's book and read it. You can get it on Amazon. I read it. I enjoyed it. And uh, it was great to have you here. Thank you, Rick. Pleasure to be with you. God bless. All right. You too. Talk to you later. Bye.